You guys, uh, we, have not shared, we have not shared for, we asked you to pray for with us about housing a few weeks back. We're still unhoused. Uh, and so we got a no from the Lord, which was a clear answer, which is what we asked for. And so the Lord answered our prayer. He said no. And that's as good an answer as yes, because it's an answer from the Lord. So it was a no, and we're waiting. And so please continue to pray with us as we continue to seek. Um, there are little bits and odds and ends and leads and things, and it's, there's just no predicting how this goes. The market is, is quite crazy at the moment. Um, I feel I'm, it's tough. Just an, a final thing, I said there were just a few kind of family things. I know um, just if you're watching the news, a place like Ukraine is on many hearts because it's the biggest global event going on at the moment. And I know that many of you have probably um, you've changed your profile pictures to have the Ukrainian flag and you've been asked to pray for Ukraine. And I want to challenge you to pray with Ukraine. There are many, many of our Christian brothers and sisters living in Ukraine, and I want you to challenge you to pray with them and alongside them as they pray. Uh, I have a friend, a childhood friend who's a missionary in Ukraine. He's been there for over 10 years now, and we know lots of people who are there. And I want to help guide your prayers by maybe pointing you briefly, this won't be on the screen, but pointing to a psalm like Psalm 58, which has these verses in verses 6 and 7. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Um, and the psalmist's prayers are prayers to remove the power of the enemy. So if you want to be proactive in your prayer and you feel, if you feel comfortable with this, Lord, fuzzy the guidance systems of Russian missiles. Okay? Lord, cause breaks in their supply lines. Lord, give them bad intelligence. Uh, if you want to pray like the psalmist, those are the kind of prayers you can pray. Make it so their weapons are powerless. Now you've not created enemies, you're not praying vengeance on them, but you're praying that God will fuzzy their power. Uh, and I think that's the way you can pray with Ukraine. So, just giving you a chance giving you a chance to maybe see how the Psalms can help us in these moments. All right, that's our family stuff. Let me turn now to our word for this week, which is again in the book of 1 John, where we talk about not loving the world. And we'll begin right away with the reading of God's word. It's just three verses this week. Uh, verse 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. And I think you can stay seated, but can we read these words aloud together? Ready? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. As you know, we're walking together through the book of 1 John, a letter or maybe possibly a sermon that was recorded where the elder John coaches the church. He begins with statements on confession. He shifts into this idea of abiding, which is the main repeated word in the book, and he closes by calling us to live in love, to abide in love. In the sections of the book we're reading this week and last week and the next week, John is eager to safeguard our abiding. And so he targets and focuses our attention on those places 
where our abiding in Christ is perhaps polluted or soiled or soured, where we can go, we could be pulled away from the abiding love of Christ. Now, in a passage like today's, the message is deceptively clear. Don't, do not love the world. That's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's a nice, easy word. Don't love the things of the world. But the message is deceptively clear because despite the clarity, this is very hard to do. It's not easy. Love of the world is deeply entrenched in our hearts and in our minds. We're wired for it. And so let's begin our study of this passage with an examination of maybe what John means by love. So what is love for John? I think he begins with these simple words. Remember, do not love the world. All well and good. But we get to ask what love means. And I think he means three things. So the first thing John means by love is that love is investment. To love the world is to be invested in the world. To invest yourself, your time, your resources, your will, your dreams, and your desires in the things of the world. Now, on this point of investment, the teachings of Jesus are quite clear, and I wouldn't be surprised if John has these, these next words from Matthew 6 of Jesus in mind explicitly. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Pretty familiar words if you follow Jesus' teaching. Maybe you've heard this story. Um, it's a husband who spent all of his life gathering money. He had stocks and investments and properties, and in time, he gathered quite a fortune, but he also received a terminal cancer diagnosis. And he began to think about these resources and what they meant. So he had a chat with his wife. He said, honey, I want you to promise me, as a good Christian woman, that um, something. And he, she thought about it and said, okay, what do you promise? What do you want me to promise? He said, when you bury me, I want you to bury me with all my money. So the wife paused for a moment, and then she said, fine. I promise. So Jonas took his course, and in time he died. And at the funeral, the wife carried forward a shoebox that she put in the casket before they closed the lid. And at the graveside, one of her knowing friends, as the casket was being lowered into the ground, one of her lifelong friends, she knew what was going on, said, did you really put all the money in the box with him? And the wife replied, I wrote him a check. <laughs> he can cash it whenever he likes. Now, the story's pretty silly, but it makes a very clear point. You can't take it with you. We know it, but we forget it. All those pharaohs buried in tombs in Egypt are surrounded by gold. They didn't need it. They couldn't use it. You can't take this stuff with you. And because we know this, but we forget it, we have to be reminded that we have a choice about where you invest yourself. You can invest in temporary things or in eternal things. You can invest in resources that will fade or resources that will last. And in the light of eternity, Jesus calls us to invest ourselves to love what is eternal. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The second thing that love is in this passage in John is that love is also attachment. To love the world is to be attached to be the world, to be caught up in the affairs of the world, the worries of the world, and the concerns of the world. 
Now, I confess that I find it quite funny when I see someone driving a Lamborghini down the street. Now, it's fun. It's interesting because it's always fun to point out to your kids like, hey, do you see the purple Lambo? And they all go, wow, that's exciting. But I always like to point out that he never parks with confidence. He's got to think all the time about where his car is and who's near it and what's around it. You don't park $200,000 on the street and walk away feeling happy. You're really attached to it. I take great joy in the fact that I have, I have an older car that I don't have to worry about doors opening into it and parking lot dings and runaway shopping carts. These things don't bother me. I don't have to be attached to that. I'm not judging you if you really love your car. That's not the point, but I think you know the attachment means you have to worry about those things deeply. And because I love my things, I become attached to them, and I often treat them as more important than people. That's one of the dangers of this. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, is a series of letters written from a senior demon to a junior demon, advice on how to tempt people. It's an interesting little thing. And in the 28th letter, he writes about this kind of attachment. He says, prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he's finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Prosperity attaches us to the world, And we think we're finding our way and we're getting ahead when really the world is putting its teeth into us. We think we're finding security, that we're building a future for our children. We think we're expressing our liberty and our comfort. But the lurking, whispering, snake-like danger of prosperity is that in it the world is attaching itself to us. In prosperity, the world tempts us to think that our things are more valuable, most valuable things about us that our portfolio matters more than the person sitting across from us, that the bottom line is more significant than the brother in need, that we should pay more attention to our house prizes than we do to our holiness. In all, we prove ourselves better at protecting our prosperity than we do at professing our Lord and King. And this is because we have loved things rather than our Lord. A third thing love is in this passage in John is this. Love is also formation. So when we love the world, the world forms us, it shapes us, it makes us into people after its own image. And this forming power is embedded in the very nature of what it means uh, for love to be love. And allow me to try to explain this to you, because I think it's actually pretty deeply embedded in the scriptures. Um, A.W. Tozer, in his lovely book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he puts it this way. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul. There's something intrinsically ingrained in the human person that we, we move towards our mental image of God. What we worship, we become. Each of us has this image of God in our hearts and minds, but none of the images, of course, is perfect. Everybody's flawed in some sense. But it seems to be inevitable that you will be shaped and spiritually formed by that image you have of God. If you love the triune God in all his glory, you will become like the triune God. If you love the world in its passing temporality, you will become temporary, just like it. So the power of this formative love is most clearly expressed in Scripture in a passage like Psalm 115, verses 2 to 8. It's a lovely psalm. Uh, But they write, Why do the nations say, Where is their God? 
And the Israelite answers, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak and eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And now verse 8 becomes the really critical verse. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. If you worship dead matter, you will become as dead as the matter you worshiped. That's the promise of the scriptures about idolatry. But the subtext is, if you worship the living God, you will become as alive as the living God. So what you worship determines what you become. What you love shapes your innermost person. And so we are formed by these loves. I should make something quite clear. You are going to love things. It's not a matter of loving or not loving. The only question is what you're going to love and how well you love it. I'm prompted to quote the prophet Bob Dylan who says, you gotta serve somebody. Now it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. It's inevitable, all right? Bob Dylan wasn't in my notes, so we could just go with that, all right? So borrowing from Paul's words in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You will be either conformed or transformed. There's really no middle ground. You can't pass on the process. You're going to be conformed to the world or transformed by Christ. And if you're not being transformed by Christ, you're being conformed by the world. For his own good purposes, God has determined that love should be the energizing power that develops us as a people. But the formative power of that love is shaped by what we loved. We're going to love and be formed. Let's love the right things, or rather, the right person. So with these three definitions in mind, investment, attachment, and formation, we can revisit again the first part of our passage. So 1 John 2, 15a, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Do not be invested in the world. Do not be attached to the world. Do not be formed by the world. And I think this is what John has in mind for us in this first verse. And on the next phrases he goes on, he expands, turning our attention to what happens when we love the wrong things. So what happens when we love the wrong things? Well, here we get 1 John 2, the rest of verse 15 and verse 16. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The first thing to note is the starkness of that initial statement. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In John's thinking, our love for the world usurps our love for God. It displaces us. That in the same way that we cannot serve both God and mammon, we cannot both love the world and the Father. The lordship of our God admits no vice regents in the human heart. So there seems to be a lot at stake here. And I think maybe we're also primed for a misreading of the text based on some of these words, specifically with respect to the language of lust in the verses that follow. Now, our instincts are probably to read this word and assume that what John has in mind is explicitly sexual desire. In other words, we could read 1 John 2.16 and think, well, it's the sex that's most likely to keep us out of the kingdom. But I think there's actually a great deal more nuance at play here. The Greek word for desire in this passage is epithumia. That's a fun word to say. It just means strong desire. 
Sometimes it's a word for sexual desire in the New Testament, but more fundamentally, it points to strength rather than type. And the best evidence for this kind of nuance comes from a passage like Luke 22:15, where Jesus says uh, at the Passover, and Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat, to eat this Passover with you. Now, he doesn't mean I have lusted to eat this Passover with you. That would be absurd. He means I have a very strong desire to eat this Passover with you. Let's go back a couple slides because I think we've got the, um, we'll have the Luke 22. And we have a couple, there we go. Just stay there. It's perfect. So when John writes about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, he seems to have in mind this very strong desire for earthly things that has the power to destroy our life with God. And with that small change to strong desire, I think can come a change in our thinking. I think it becomes clearer that John is here evoking the story of the fall, specifically the temptation of Eve. You should recall the story. God has given Adam and Eve the whole of the garden, but instructed them not to eat of one tree. And when the serpent tempts Eve, he draws her attention to the fruit of that tree. And Genesis 3.6 is on the screen. When the woman saw the tree was good for the food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, the, the word in Greek and Hebrew is not the same word, so I don't want you to think that I'm pulling these things together artificially, but I do think that, that John may have this in mind, especially by his reference to the lust of the eyes. Eve was deceived, and Adam with her, by means of the desires of the world, the strong desire of their flesh to know what God knew, and the strong desire of their eyes to taste what was forbidden fruit. And these are the primary avenues through which they disobeyed God. So seen this way, the fall it was, no, was a matter of placing love of the world in priority over love of God. And their actions introduce what John calls the boastful pride of life, the pride of believing I am my own. I can live on my own. I have power over myself. That's a prideful boast of self-sufficiency uh, that's at the heart of what Adam and Eve do. I think you know that nothing in this universe lives on its own. The apple is formally dead the moment it's removed from the tree. The vine dies apart from the root that gives it life. And we are spiritually dead apart from the vital life of our God. We cannot live on our own. To put this statement in a statement form, the love of the world reorders our relationship to God. When we love the world, it reorders our relationship to God. Instead of God being first, the world becomes first. And this creates chaos. We elevate the world over God when we are invested and attached and formed by the world. The world becomes a block, an inhibitor to our proper relationship with God. We can't love God and the world at the same time. We can't make it through the eye of the needle with wealth. We can't serve God and mammon. It doesn't work. And John's quite explicit about why it doesn't work. John, 1 John 2, 17a, the world is passing away and also its lusts. When we love the world, we attach, invest, and are formed by things that aren't permanent. And being formed by impermanent things, we become impermanent ourselves. That's the promise of Psalm 115. Having worshipped idols, we become as stupid as the idols we were worshipping. And all of this is because, as John makes quite clear, the world is temporary, but God is eternal. The world is temporary, and God is eternal. Now, this is one of the things I think we all know, but of which we need frequent reminding. The world and its desires are temporary. Wealth is temporary. Beauty is temporary. Fame is temporary. Success, temporary. Your life is temporary. 
All these things are temporary. I don't want to use this image wrongly, but perhaps no image of this is more evocative than that of refugees fleeing their homes in Ukraine at the moment. Mums and kids with a backpack for their entire family's possessions. They've escaped with only what they can carry. It was all temporary. So where's the real value? It makes it stark for us. Not that, not that we should be doing that, but just it makes it stark to realize that, wait a minute, if we face similar trouble, we would realize the real value of our things and of our kids and of our families and of what really matters. Now, even as I say this about this temporar- the temporariness, there's a hugely important clarification. The world may be temporary, but it's not worthless. We may be spiritually destined, but we, we are still uh, material beings. Perhaps you've heard it said of some Christian people, he was so heavenly minded that he was no earthly good. Maybe you've met some people like that. And there's been an unfortunate trend in Bible reading where our fellow Christians have read passages like this one in 1 John and concluded that because the world is passing away, it is therefore of no importance at all. The world is passing away, therefore I can litter or frack or strip mine or deforest it or destroy it in any manner I please. It's all passing away anyway. Now, against this thinking, I want to remind you of some really important words that the same John who wrote these words about the world passing away also wrote Revelation 21.1, which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. John's vision of the future is a renewed earth, not a wiped out earth. And then he says just a few verses later, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The world's not going to be trashed. The world's going to be cleaned. It's going to be made right because it's God's good world. But it's been corrupted. And what corrupted it has been its misuse and abuse by us. We are the cause of the corruption in the world. And this means that the world is full of good things that, taken apart from God, lead to our own destruction. I want to talk for a minute about some of these good things. Sex is good. Prosperity is good. Fame and influence, they're great. Power, it's good. Happiness is good. The pursuit of happiness is good. But any of these things, when taken for themselves and apart from the God who designed them, become horrors. Becoming attached to money or formed by sex or invested in personal fame, becoming an influencer. Oh, my word. These are the recipes for the greatest of possible unhappinesses because goods taken for themselves apart from the God who made them are unmitigated horrors. We can't have them. We can list more things. Freedom is good. Nationality is good. Heritage and race are good. Citizenship is good. But again, when they are loved for themselves, when we are attached, invested, and formed by these things apart from God, this is how we create our own little hells throughout the earth. And so John tells us, do not love the world. But let's be honest, telling someone don't love it may not be all that helpful. Just stop loving it, right? It's not maybe the most helpful advice. And so how are we going to do this? How will we practically go about not loving the world? I'm going to offer three pieces of advice. 
And the first one is this. I think the way to correct bad love is with good love. The way to correct correct bad love is with good love. And this is partly what I see John saying in the final words of our passage. So 1 John 2, 17, second half of the verse. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. The one who does God's will lives forever. Once again, we're back in the Garden of Eden, I believe, where performing God's will preserves our vital life and relationship to God. And therefore, the love, as the love of the world reordered our relationship to God, made everything topsy-turvy, now it's the case that the love of God reorders our relationship to the world. Love of the world made a mess of our relationship to God, but love of God makes a rightness of our relationship to the world. It puts things in their proper perspective. And so the solution to bad love is good love. John doesn't tell you to hate the world. He tells us to love God more than the world. That's a very different action of the heart, isn't it? You're not being asked to hate things. You're not being asked to hate what's going on in people and the world around you. You're being asked to love God more than all of those things. Because when we are invested in God... And when we are attached to God, and when we are formed by God, the world takes its right place relative to our loves. Now we can use the things of the world rather than being used by the things of the world, or worse yet, using the things of the world to hurt the people around us. Second thing we can do is we can get to good love through good theology. We can get to good love through good theology. Part, of course, has been what I hope to see us in a teaching like this morning's, but I also encountered something this past week that stood out to me, and I thought I should share it with all of you. A friend of mine online posted the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Those of you who don't know what the Heidelberg Catechism is, it's this document written in the 1530s, I had the number up before, but up, written in the 1500s in response, and the catechism is meant as like a family training. You'd sit at your table and you'd go through this with your kids. Uh, the reformers were very intense about teaching their kids. Uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, the answer to this is lovely to me. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not my own. My stuff is not my own. I'm not in charge, but I belong to him. It's my only comfort in life and in death that when I die, he looks after me, but while I'm alive, he's going to look after me as well. What a beautiful place to begin a theology. And it's a good theology that sets us up for our proper relationship to the world. So third thing we can say about uh, how to do this is that we can get to good love through good practice, okay? We can get to good love through good practice. And in this sense, I think it's absolutely marvelous that we are approaching the season of Lent and that this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And I want to invite you formally to join us in a season of fasting as a church. Now, I need to talk about fasting because I think we can get this really, really wrong in a lot of ways. Fasting is not about punishing yourself. Fasting is not about hurting yourself. Fasting is really not about avoiding sin. It's really not what it's about. Fasting is about putting the relationship of the world's goods and the good of God back in their proper perspective. And so what you do is you fast from something that's really good so that you can enjoy it all the more. You put it in its perspective. 
Uh, many of you may not know this, but you've probably, if you've grown up in some liturgical churches, you'll have heard of the 40 days of Lent, which echo the 40 days of Jesus wandering, um, fasting in the desert, right? Lent is actually 46 days because Sundays don't count, okay? So anything you fast from needs to be something you can reasonably feast upon. Do you see what good news this is? You're taking a break from something good so that you can enjoy it all the more. You're putting the world in its right perspective relative to your life. And I think there's something really hopeful and exciting about that. So I'm inviting you to join us in fasting. Let me just say a couple things. One, we will have an Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday night. Some of you can come, some of you can't. That's fine. I'll give some formal teaching on how we fast, what it looks like, what to do. I'm giving you a very short version on this right now which is to say it can be food, but it doesn't have to be food. It could be a type of food rather than just being hungry all the time. I've had Lent's where I was a vegetarian for the 46 days. I didn't like it, okay? It was hard on me, but I had to learn things about myself. I've had Lent's where I avoid cream and sugar in my coffee. I'm Hispanic. I really love the cream and sugar in my coffee. It was a reminder every time I sipped that I love these things, and they're good. I was putting them in perspective. I've had seasons where I've done no television, right? That was hard. It was a genuine challenge to do that stuff. Um, I've had friends who turned off the music in their car while they drove. He almost went crazy. He's so used to it. But do you see what it is? It's always a good thing that we're laying aside for the sake of remembering how good it is. And so I invite you to find some place in your life where there's something good that you can lay aside for the 40 days of Lent, for the 46 days of Lent, something you can feast upon and celebrate that helps you to put it in order with your life, to remember how good our God is and how we don't love the world, but love our God first of all. So brothers and sisters, the love of the world is perilous to our love for God. It threatens our abiding in Christ. But the direction in which John leads us is not to hate the world, but to love God more than the world. As we re-enter now into a time of worship, and I'll invite the, the team to come forward and take their places. May we exalt our Lord and King Christ, making him first in our hearts, to the glory of the Father and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.